The e-commerce fuel podcast is sponsored by Shopify, the platform I personally use to host my own store. Why did I move to them from Magento, who I had been on for years? Well, Shopify has an enormous ecosystem of developers and apps. Their template framework and API are really well architected, and they're a hosted service, so I can focus on growing my business versus spending hours worrying about server issues. And best of all, they make me more money. Our business experienced an enormous 41% conversion increase after we migrated. Check them out at shopify.com. Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, your headquarters for building a six-figure-plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew here and welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today on the show, going to be talking about a video I came across this last week. And thanks going out to Miracle Wanzo in the forums for posting that she was the one who brought it to my attention or the forums' attention rather. It's called The Four Horsemen is the title of the video. It's by a guy named Scott Galloway over at NYU Stern. And it was a presentation he did at the DLD, I think that's the Digital Life Design conference. And it sounds like it's some crazy, uh, you know, Halloween style story, but he's really talking about what he calls the four horsemen, the four big giants in tech, Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and talking about who's going to win and who's going to lose and some of the trends and predictions they're making kind of looking forward in 2015 and beyond. So some were interesting, some I thought were right on, some I thought were crazy and wanted to talk about them and dissect them. And of course, you can think of a few people better to come on and do that than Mr. Bill Dallasandro. Bill, how you doing, buddy? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, as always. And speaking of Amazon, it's been about six months since, as we were just talking about, with the bet, if you'll remember back. I'm sure you remember. If other people. I do. <laughs> <laughs> For other people, we made a bet when we did the Alibaba podcast about whose stock would outperform in 2000 uh, over the course of the next year. And we bet a steak dinner on it. And Bill, how are we, how are we looking for those things? I was, on the, I was on the Alibaba side and you were on the Amazon side in terms of who would do better. Yep. So for stock performance, it's been about six months or so about halfway into the bet. So far, Amazon is up 25.3% while Alibaba is down 5.2%. So I am feeling good. So brutal. We, you pinged me about this last night, and I was feeling pretty good. And then I hadn't realized that Amazon stock had like gone up eighty dollars from three hundred to almost four hundred bucks, and uh, I had a moment of depression last night. Yeah, so. at the at the halfway mark, I'm feeling good, but there's a lot of time to go. There is, there is. So hopefully we'll see a turnaround. And it was tough too because at the beginning, I, I mean, the first month or two was looking very was very looking very good for Alibaba. It was, it was. But as I told you earlier, don't bet against Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, man. So we got six months left. Hopefully we'll see a little, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Maybe I'll give Bezos a call, see if I can make anything happen. Right. So of course, we're going to get into the four horsemen. But before we do, I want to do a quick first sale shout out. And this one's going out to Phil Stone from Picnic and Tailgate.com. And he writes in, Well, at long loss, it happened. After opening my website on January 1st to the Sons of Crickets, I made my first sale two months later, and I'm euphoric. Nothing like this happens in a vacuum, so thank you very much for the digital mentorship, the podcast, and the insider's guide. Your paid training have been invaluable. I go back to them time and time again as both a learning tool and a reference. Phil, that's fantastic, man. Two months, I, I mean, I'm sure that you were, uh, a lot of anticipation have been built up uh, over that time. And it's, it's really cool to hear that we've been helpful in terms of getting you going. So congratulations and best of luck going forward. All right, let's go ahead and get into today's discussion on the Four Horsemen video. 
So Bill, I'm going to go ahead and just dive right in. And this is going to be a little bit more of a freeform discussion given how all over the place this video was. If you want to watch it, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. We'll link up to the video in the show notes for this episode at ecommercefuel.com. And of course, if you just Google the Four Horsemen video, Scott Galloway, that'll also pop up. But diving in just some of his predictions, he tackled Amazon first and really talked about Amazon probably two-thirds of the time. And one of the things that he sees going forward as a major trend is the end of pure play e-commerce or what he calls pure play e-commerce. And what he means by that is that he thinks in the future going forward to survive, you won't be able to just be an online retailer. You won't be able to just be a bricks and mortar business. You're going to have to be able to do both of those to be able to stay relevant. And he thinks Amazon is actually going to have to open up you know, one of their own stores and get into the, the bricks and mortar market as well. And he kind of uses examples of Fab. You know, uh, Fab, of course, just famously sold for $15 million this last month or so, which is just a tiny fraction of what they were valued at before. Guilt isn't doing as well. I mean, then he pointed to companies like Warby Parker, who I think sales per square foot are second in the US only to Apple, which is pretty amazing. So Bill, what did you think about that? Like, was that a convincing argument to you? Do you think that's actually the end of pure pay e-commerce is something we're going to see? Uh, eventually, I would say yes. I don't think this is the type of thing where it's going to happen over the next three years. But I think, yeah, eventually you're going to want to have you know, this brick and mortar presence coupled with the e-commerce presence. I mean, I'm sure you, we've all seen it. Like I wanted to buy light bulbs the other day and you know, there are some things that you just need right now. And I went on Amazon and because of the shipping light bulbs on Amazon are like two or three X the price versus going down to home Depot. It's really not because their light bulbs are any more expensive. It's because getting them to me is more expensive. So if, you know, if Amazon had a store just down the street and they could dispatch a guy on a bike to bring me my light bulbs, you know, it's a lot cheaper than shipping it from South Carolina. So, yeah, I do think eventually Amazon is going to need a brick and mortar retail presence. I don't think it's burningly urgent, but we're getting there. So what do you think I can see on, on the Amazon front if you want to keep growing? But what about what if you're a five million dollar in revenue or lower e-commerce retailer? In my mind, I don't see brick and mortar really being as relevant to smaller independent retailers. Yes, for national brands, it can be a, you know, something that's, that you can maybe have to really consider in the future. But for smaller retailers, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, especially, you know, if you're, well, I mean, take your business, right? Channel radios. I mean, no offense. It was fairly niche business, right? I mean, it's not like every, small. <gasps> oh, I know, <laughs> but not, it's not like every town in America needs a CB radio store in it. Right. You know? That's something that like it's much more valuable to the customer to go online to right channel and have like the best broad, awesome selection of CB radios versus, you know, the CB radio store in their town is just not going to be that robust. So for stuff like that, I think we'll continue to do very well online. But for the stuff, you know, the targets, the Amazons, like the people, the everything stores, I think you're going to need to have both because there's already one of them in every town anyway. Yeah, I can see that. What about Amazon though? Like you look at Amazon, their entire business model is based on being a low cost provider, having really good, efficient infrastructure. And they are the world leader in delivering goods cheaply online, right? And they, they're still not making money. And granted, they're investing a lot of money back into their infrastructure and growth. That's their value add. That's their huge, unique selling proposition. So how are they going to be able to open up a brick and mortar store with so much more overhead and be able to survive? I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I think that was initially their value proposition, and that continues to be something they do very, very well with Prime, which is a huge differentiator. But I think long term, Amazon's value proposition is going to be they're a great e-commerce retailer. They have everything on the planet. 
through either they stock it or one of their merchants stocks it. And they have your credit card information, your payment info on file. They know you and they know what you want to buy. I think their really tight relationship with the customer, which includes having their payment information on file, knowing almost everything they've ever bought and what they might want to buy in the future and having all of those things available in the Amazon catalog, I think that's going to be ending up being their core competency. And what is now currently their core competency shipping and doing fulfillment and logistics is going to morph into a more generic getting you these goods. And that might encompass, you know, local brick and mortar. It might encompass local courier. It might encompass, you know, whatever other ways of delivering these goods. But I think it's going to become a more generic getting you these goods versus really tight fulfillment to UPS supply chain. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's a, about as good of an answer as I <laughs> could yeah. hope to get, man. If we kind of move on and talk about some of the things that really sets Amazon apart and their unique factors in the market, this is another thing that Scott in the video talked about. You know, he talked about how Amazon came and they started with free shipping. They they massively subsidized shipping. I think they spent like they spent six and a half billion dollars on shipping, but only half of that was collected from customers. They just pretty much you know footed the rest and. They've moved it from Christmas packages a year over year. I mean, this year, two-thirds of Christmas packages were shipped for free versus one-third in 2013. So they've completely... It used to be free shipping from Amazon was was something unique to them. That's something that's more ubiquitous now. And then same-day delivery, you know, they're rolling that out in big cities, which is amazing. Just recently rolled out like one or two-hour delivery in like New York and Manhattan, which is just mind-boggling. You know, Scott, again, makes the case that he sees things like Uber as being a huge threat to that competitive advantage because, you know, you and I potentially assuming we had, maybe not us, but people, larger brands that had warehouses everywhere, even if they don't have the infrastructure, they can just hire Uber drivers really inexpensively to be able to compete in terms of fast one to two hour delivery. So do you agree with them in the fact that a lot of their competitive advantages are are disappearing or is it kind of, I mean, you touched on really their competitive advantage, maybe going back to your previous answer, it's more that just they have everything and they've got your info. That's what I think. And I think it's really, I don't think Amazon is the one that's, that should be threatened by Uber. I think it's UPS. I mean, Amazon is a giant customer of UPS and the postal service. And as they sort of fragment their presence out to more local brick and mortar, it's going to make more sense. You can hire an Uber for about 90 cents a mile, a car and a driver, about 90 cents a mile. If you are fractured to brick and mortar all over the country and you're never more than, you know, four or five miles from anybody you want to deliver something to, that means you can get it to them in a matter of hours for literally a couple dollars. It'll be cheaper than UPS and it'll be faster. So Amazon, I think they're just going to shift their spend from the traditional carriers now to, you know, kind of local just-in-time carriers like Uber. Yeah, interesting. Because for a while, there was a big prediction that Amazon was going to go ahead and either buy a company like UPS or FedEx or just roll out their own shipping fleet to complete with them, given that, you know, such, that they spent such a massive amount of money on shipping. But it seems like it's so hard to predict, but yeah, you can see that happening. It'd be amazing to have just an army of contract cheap UPS drivers at your beck and call. It'd change the whole game. And even small merchants would be pretty cool to do that. Although it'd be a little harder because it, it's also predicated on do you have inventory close at hand? But it'd be a pretty cool system to see. And that's what I think Amazon is going to become the wizard at. We have inventory close at hand such that we can take it to you in an Uber for 3 or $4. And that's going to be their competitive advantage. They're going to have everything. They're going to be experts at inventory management, have it all relatively close. And interestingly, relatively close doesn't necessarily mean it has to be in an Amazon warehouse. So imagine you're an Amazon merchant 
you know, in Boulder, Colorado, where I am. And you've got the inventory on your shelf. Ah, uh, I see where you're going. It doesn't really matter. Uber can come pick it up from you just as easy as they can pick it up from Amazon and deliver it to the customer. Customers, none the wiser. They bought it on Amazon. It got delivered in an Amazon Uber car, but they don't know that it didn't come from Amazon at all. So that's what I mean. And that I think Amazon is going to become experts at inventory management. And it's not even going to be all their own inventory. That's really interesting. All of a sudden you're shopping on Amazon for even fairly obscure items and you see, hey, you can buy this or you can buy this one, which is it's in Boulder. It can be there in an hour for free. Right. That's crazy. Another thing interesting to get your take on, he talks a lot about what he thinks is going to be, be a trend that picks up a lot in 2015, click and collect. And so placing an order online, but picking it up in the stores. And some of the numbers he said, you know, apparently this is fairly popular in Europe, places like France, 60% of people have used this. But, you know, in 2014, I think only about 20% of people in the US have used it. But apparently that grew by about 50% from 2013. So it's picking up steam. And it'd be interesting because I, I kind of floated this question in the form and got a number of different answers. Personally, I don't see the appeal to click and collect in terms of going to the store and, and picking it up. For me, like one of the main reasons I shop online is flexibility. Like I hate driving to the store. You drive to the store, you shop, you come back. It takes 45 minutes, an hour. For me, I just don't see the appeal. I know some of the arguments are, you know, it's flexible if you're not at home and you don't want the UPS guy to leave leave the package there. Okay, that maybe works. If you order a big TV and it's at Best Buy and you can pick it up there versus shipping it to your house, maybe you save money. Maybe it's faster if you need it same day and it's at a local store. But I can see it maybe growing up a little bit, but I don't see it becoming an enormous part of e-commerce. What do you think? I agree with you. I see it more as sort of an occasional use thing, like as you mentioned, for a television to save on shipping if it happens to be local. However, I will say, you know, you, I'm coming to you from Boulder and you're coming to all of us from Montana. My brother, my little brother lives in New York City right now, and it's nearly impossible for him to get packages at his apartment. So I think in some of these denser areas, so what he does is Amazon has those boxes mm-hmm. where you can have your order delivered to basically a lockbox. And I'm, I bet that gets baked into these click and collect stats. So I can see how if you're in New York City, it's a real pain in the butt to get a package at your apartment or at your work. You have it delivered to a Dropbox, you know, at the subway stop between your work and your home and you grab it on the way home. That's easier for everybody. So I wonder how it would break down urban versus suburban. What's it look like in Boulder? I mean, Montana, people, heck man, people barely lock their doors half the time. And so leaving a package out on your deck for, you know, a couple hours till you get home is not a big deal. Is that the same case in Boulder or is it a little bit, a little more iffy? Eh, it's not a big deal here. I, I mean, I think in most of America, it's not a big deal until you get to these urban environments where you might not even have a front step. Like most people live in apartments. Do you have a doorman? Do you have a box? You know, like, can he get in? Are you there to buzz him in? Like all this stuff leads to packages not getting delivered, et cetera. And it just becomes way easier to send it to the box. That's why my brother sends it to the box all the time. So that's my guess. And even though those are, those areas are small in number, they're high in population count. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Quote that I thought was really interesting. This kind of ties into Uber and kind of the trend in terms of the service-based economy and on-demand crowdsourcing. The quote was, there are some incredible opportunities for people in the information economy, but where the real growth in jobs will be is in low-wage, on-demand services, such as you know things like TaskRabbit and Uber. Smartphone economy is going to be outstanding for employment. It's going to be terrible for wages. It's interesting. I wonder, I mean, you, you see that over the last you know, five to 10 to 15 years in terms of wages really stagnating for the middle class and, and even declining a little bit with a lot of people in 
you know, in, in tech, in the information economy, like they say, really doing well disproportionately. I wonder if we're going to see that just accelerate like crazy in the next 10 years. I think so. I, I thought one thing that was very interesting from the videos, he said that increasingly and rapidly, the forty dollars to $80,000 a year sales jobs at places like Nordstrom's and other retailers are being replaced with twenty dollars to $40,000 a year warehouse jobs. And the quote from the video, I think you just said, it's going to be great for the economy and terrible for wages. It's going to drive down wages. And I think the reason that is, is because the reason you're going to pay somebody 70 grand a year is because they're really good at interacting with the person and making a sale and driving up average order value. But technology is getting better and better and better at that, such that all of the buying, you don't need to interact with a highly paid human in order to transact your sale. You just go on the website and you buy it by yourself. So all those sales jobs are the ones that actually are getting replaced by technology. And weirdly enough, tech has gotten better at replacing interpersonal relationships than it has at replacing manual labor. Robots are not quite to the point yet as AI. So it's kind of interesting that all this left now for the people are the cheaper manual labor jobs that the robots can't do yet. So some of the predictions he had, a few more looking forward, I guess we've got over a bunch of them, but he has even more predictions, I should say. And I like this first one. Amazon will decline in value in 2015. Should we call him up and see if he wants to get in on our stake? Yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm with that one. And man, keeping the fingers crossed here. Nothing's going to be worse than uh, watching Bill eat a delicious steak as juices yeah. run down his chin and, and, and I sit there in defeat. Yeah, the I'm, other- I'm firmly against that one. I think Amazon, I th- if I could own two stocks right now, it's Amazon and Apple. And we will get to Apple in a minute. But I'm really hot on Amazon. Do you own them? I do. You, you own both of them. I do. Okay. And I have for the past five years. Wow. Dang it. Good work. We man, should have bet, a, bet about this five years ago and got invested with you. The other prediction, the last prediction on Amazon was that they're going to make a transformative brick and mortar acquisition in the next 12 months. So, you know, along the lines that uh, pure play e-commerce is dead and Amazon needs a physical presence, they're going to buy something. And some of the names he floated was Radio Shack, a gas station chain, the U.S. post office, potentially something that gives them, you know, a really good footprint. Radio Shack seems like probably getting pretty cheap right now. Aren't they in bankruptcy? They are in bankruptcy. I think they might have just sold their stores to someone else, though. I think they might be off the table. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Uh, well, as part of bankruptcy. Yeah. Well, someone though, it'll be. Do you see? What do you think? You see that actually happening in the next twelve months? I do. So I agree with him in uh, uh, headline, but not in specifics. I do think Amazon makes a transformative acquisition. I used to think it would be UPS, but I don't think that anymore. Given sort of Uber as the alternative, or something like Uber, something flexible where Amazon doesn't need to actually own the fleet. And I instead think it's going to be a big brick and mortar retailer. My favorite pick for this one is Target. Target is great on e-commerce. They're one of the better brick and mortar retailers on e-commerce. They also specialize in a lot of the stuff that Amazon isn't good at. Toothbrushes, light bulbs, you know, sort of the everyday necessities. They've also got a bit of a, a bit of design sense. Like if you go into a Target store, it's very well laid out. They're, mm-hmm. You know, it, they're a more forward-thinking company. And I pulled some stats before we hopped on this podcast. Target currently has 1,800 stores across the United States, and their market cap is $50 billion. Amazon's market cap is $175 billion currently. So this would certainly be, I mean, a Target's about a third the size of Amazon. So it would be certainly a transformative acquisition, but it would catapult Amazon in a big way 
into dominant in brick and mortar, dominant online, and consider immediately they get 1,800 of these local fulfillment centers, essentially store fulfillment centers. And these are big box stores that are already laid out to have retail up front, warehouse in the back. It's a great time. I mean, for, in terms of Amazon, their stock's so high with like, if it was a stock deal, it'd be really not cheap, but relatively cheap given how highly valued their stock is if they could make it structure the deal like that. Mm-hmm. And th- I mean, think about the purchasing economies of scale they would get between Amazon and, and Target. It would be insane. I'd originally picked Walmart for this, but Walmart is actually bigger than Amazon. So, oh, really? So, <laughs> yeah. Walmart's about $225 billion to Amazon's 175 Well, it feels like it feels like just on a gut level, Target and Amazon would go together anyway. You mentioned Target's a little bit savvier. Walmart's a little bit, I, I hate to use the word ghetto, but it is. It's, you know, I feel like they'd just be in terms of culturally, they'd be, a, it seems like a more natural fit. I think so. Yeah. I think Target would be a great fit. And then I did pick one more. If Bezos doesn't want to drop 50 billion on Target, <laughs> he's got another option and that's Sears. So Sears has been uh, struggling as of late, but they still, Sears still has 790 locations. Their market cap is only 4.2 billion to Amazon's 175. So Bezos could buy Sears with the change in his couch and immediately have 800 stores across the United States. Again, big box stores, store in the front, warehouse in the back would be great as fulfillment centers. You know, in a lot of malls across the country, you know, well geographically dispersed near population centers. So if you don't want to spring for Target, you could go for Sears for, you know, about half the number of locations, but about a tenth the price of Target. Well, that man, that almost, it's not quite as like, you know, not quite as broad in the product offerings, but if their primary goal is just to get real estate, to get plugged into something, if you go with Target, yeah, yeah, you're really, I mean, you're paying for a, for a well-known brand, one that's not in distress. And I like that one a lot, man. I'd, I'd put my money, if I, uh, I'm not going to put my money anywhere else until uh, <laughs> after <laughs> our bet. But to me, maybe, I, maybe this is the, the thrifty guy and me coming through. In terms of the return, both of those options relative to their costs, Sears sounds like a home run. It does. It's it's a lot cheaper. You don't get like quite the broad product selection as you get. Target has grocery. Sears doesn't have grocery. Grocery something Amazon's weekend has been trying to get into uh, with Amazon Fresh. That's why I really like Target is right over home plate, but it would be a big swing. Sears is a lot cheaper. Yeah, interesting. But it wouldn't be that hard. I mean, would it be that hard? Obviously, it's nice going in and having everything there, but it wouldn't be that hard to take the infrastructure and bring in groceries, bring in more, you know, things for, for the home, toothbrushes, et cetera, because the hard part seems getting the build out versus getting the actual products into the store. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I would think so. Crazy. Very cool. Awesome. Good numbers. Thanks for, thanks for bringing those in. Yeah. So we've talked, man, we spent a ton of time talking about Amazon in the future. And that's actually what in the Four Horsemen video he talked the most about. But I do want to touch on the three other big ones, Facebook, Google, and Apple really quickly. So he kind of put something into words that I've noticed, but haven't really didn't sink in how big of a deal this was in terms of Facebook. He called what they've done the last you know two, three years, the greatest bait and switch in marketing history in terms of two, three years ago, they were really pushing people, hey, invest in your Facebook page, pay to get likes, really build up your community there organically. And so people did, all these big brands did. I know I did in, in, in some areas. And now the organic reach on Facebook, which means the percentage of people who see a post that you send out to your audience is about 6%, which is, is just minuscule. And now they're just getting people to pay for it. Yeah. I, I think bait and switch is the perfect word for it. I, I mean, as a brand, and I'm sure you feel similarly, 
I think it's total BS. I did not buy into Facebook, you know, acquiring likes to the degree that a lot of people did. So I feel good about that. But he says in the video that Facebook ad sales reps are telling brands to, quote, assume organic reach (laughs) is basically zero, which is absurd. I mean, it's well, it's not absurd as long as that was the deal the whole time. But it definitely wasn't the deal the whole time. Facebook, I think they've reduced. I mean, organic reach used to be basically 100 percent. You would make a post on your fan page and everybody would see it. And now it's down to 6%. I mean, it's dramatic. I wonder why it hasn't, like, why isn't there more backlash about this? Like, you kind of know about it, but this seems like the kind of thing that could potentially, is it, maybe it's because it's happened so slowly over a couple of years, but when you see this, you look at it, it seems outrageous, and yet there's not a whole lot of blowback. I think it's A, they did it slowly, and B, the brands have no other choice. I think what it was is in the early days when reach was that high, the payback on Facebook was so preposterously good that now dropping it down to, you know, 6%, like the returns are still there, but now it's approached, you know, AdWords and all these other, other ways of reaching your audience. Facebook is no longer this just outrageous goldmine of engagement that it used to be. They've just sort of monetized it down to the point where it's as effective as everything else. Man, we should, this is maybe an, uh, a topic for another podcast, but the idea how a lot of times what makes a business a platform whatever it is great in the early days, it always gets cannibalized by people who try to just, you know, cut a little bit into it and cut a little bit into it. And I think it's like this human tendency and it's, I don't blame Facebook or anyone else for doing it because I think everyone does the same thing. You know, you cut back along customer service, you boost the prices a little bit, you just take a little bit more and more and more. And then before you know it, what really made the product great has been completely cannibalized for short-term profit. It's so hard to avoid doing that. It is. I also think, though, some of it, it, there's some of that, but there's also, as a platform matures, all of the profit gets arbitraged out of it. Like when Google started with AdWords, cost per click was like five cents. I mean, Mm -hmm. people were making absurd fortunes on AdWords because it seems like in the early days of a company, often they just don't know how effective, like a platform like Google or Facebook that is really an innovation and is fantastically effective and grows to become Google or Facebook. I think in the early days, they don't a necessarily have a grasp of just how good it is. So they don't know how to price it. And then also at the same time, people come in and it becomes way more competitive. They sort of squeeze all the juice out of it over time and it begins to be priced better. And then also as a young company, Google or Facebook, you want as many people advertising on there as possible because you're trying to grow, you're trying to grab market share, you're trying to you know, raise venture capital dollars. And then as you become a, a dominant, once you're Facebook and no one else is really nipping at your heels and you've won, then you squeeze the dollars. Yeah. Interesting. And funny, you, you talk about really sucking all the juice out of Google cost per click. One of the things he mentioned moving on to Google is that AdWord, and I was surprised to hear this. He said that AdWord costs per click. So, you know, what you'd pay for a click overall on average on AdWords has gone down for like a couple years in a row now. He attributed it to increased competition from other platforms like Facebook, people spending more time on apps on their phone for searching as opposed to just strictly on Google's website because you know they're, they're on mobile. Did that shock you? Surprised me a little bit. I had heard that before. My guess is that I, I was racking my brain to come up as a hypothesis to why. I think this is the Amazon effect. He mentioned right alongside that stat that two thirds of product searches begin on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And a product search, that's a valuable search. That's somebody that's going to buy something. So I think over the past couple of years, 
as commerce has moved to Amazon, commerce has moved into apps, et cetera. That means the highly valuable searches have moved off of Google to some degree. You know, some of those valuable searches have migrated to Amazon, have migrated into apps. And as a result, you can't pay as much for a click on Google because more of or a smaller percentage of Google searches are those high value. I'm going to buy something right now searches. Uh, so it's not Google reducing their prices or competition decreasing. It's just migrating somewhere else. I mean, it's a market, right? Like those those cost per clicks. Those are every single search is an auction. So the price of a click is a market value of a click. So if those prices are going down, that means advertisers on Google's are are willing to pay less for those clicks. And I think the reason is because the high value searches are not exclusively on Google anymore. So finally, want to tackle Apple. And he cast Apple in a light that I thought was really interesting and, and, and in a way I hadn't really thought about it before. He kind of led off with saying, here's the definition of a luxury brand. If you look at a luxury brand, it needs to have really high quality craftsmanship. You need to have usually an iconic founder. You need a high price point. Usually you need to be vertically integrated, at least up through the distribution and often the sales channel. So you can, at least at some level, control the sales experience. You need to be a global brand and you have to offer some kind of self-expressive benefit to whoever your buyer is. And he made a case, pretty convincing one, I thought, that Apple has become you know, the most prominent luxury brand in the world because it meets all of those criteria. They're the biggest company, I believe, right now in the world. And he did a, a really interesting heat map where he overlaid the people who use iOS, who use Apple in geographical areas. And like you could see in Manhattan, of course, a fairly affluent area. It was all iOS. And as you got out into the suburbs and other areas, Android was much more popular. So interesting to see that. And he's, you know, he's kind of making the call that, that Apple will become the first trillion dollar market cap company, biggest in the world, first ever to hit that mark. And I definitely see that happening. Yep. I do too. I mean, I, you can see it not just in, you know, everybody buys a new iOS device every time it comes out. And why is it that much incrementally better? I mean, realistically, no, Android has had better features than iOS, you know, from a pure feature set for years. But it's like you pull out that new iPhone 6 and people are like, oh, you got that new iPhone 6. Like, cool, you know. And then it goes even beyond that to the accessories, like the cases and like everybody's changing their case all the time and accessorizing their Apple devices. It's absolutely uh, self-expressive. And then and here comes the watch with all the different bands. And well, I got I got the gold one and I got the leather band, you know, all this stuff. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be crazy. Well, it's funny. You think about tech and tech is a low margin business, right? And I've heard the stat before that Apple makes some something like eight, I don't know, 80% plus. I'm pulling this out of thin air. He makes the vast majority of all of the profits in the smartphone industry. And he brought up the point that Apple's really the only tech company or tech product for that matter that over the course of any kind of decent period, you know, three, four, five years, six years, has managed to increase the margins on their product. Usually just about everything you see gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time. It hasn't been the case with Apple. They've kept those margins really rich. They have. They've gotten better. And it's really because they've held their price. And as they've gotten bigger, their costs have gone down. And the thing I think that makes Apple unique is that they are able to hold that price. And the reason they're able to hold the price is not because you can't get a smartphone anywhere else, but because you can't get an Apple smartphone anywhere else. You know, the thing that competes down prices in consumer electronics is all the TVs become the same. They all 1080p and nobody really cares what logos on it. But Apple's got this differentiation where the only phone that's an iPhone is an iPhone. So if you haven't haven't watched the video, if you have watched it, you probably were just like, wow, well, 
man, you guys just recapped this whole episode, which we kind of did, but uh, <laughs> it's fun to talk about. If you haven't watched the video, check it out. We'll link up over to it again in the show notes. It's 15 minutes. It's super fast. You can just put it on your, your iPhone or Android or whatever you're listening to and probably hammer it out in a, the walk home or commute. Bill, fun spitballing this kind of stuff. And it'll be fun to see what happens with Amazon if, that, if your uh, prediction comes through for Target or Sears. And uh, man, I'm really rooting against you on this Amazon star price. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> we shall. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. Fun as always. Sure thing. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55-page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private forum. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 in monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.